You're listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter, because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of the matter is better than its beginning and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter, as money is a shelter. But the advantage of of knowledge is this. Wisdom preserves those who have it. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, Neither be overwise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be overwicked, and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. Wisdom makes one wise person more powerful than ten rulers in a city. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. Reading continues in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 to 12. A common destiny for all. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise are what they do in God's hands. But no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterwards they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. 
For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Go, eat your food with gladness, and drink your wine with a joyful heart. For God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white, and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. All your meaningless days, for this is your lot in life, and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead, where you are going, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no one knows when the hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. Thank you so much, uh, Tessa and Claire. Uh, well, that's quite a word from the Lord for us today, isn't it? Um, it's quite difficult. Uh, there is lots and lots to be said. Uh, and uh, they read merely half of the passage we're looking at today. We're looking at the whole of chapter 7, verse 1, through to chapter 9, verse 12. So we're going to need some help from the Lord, aren't we, as we look into that in more detail. Uh, let us bow our heads. Let us pray together. Father God, thank you so much uh, that your word is eternal and it is exactly what we need in this ever-changing world of ours. Help us to hear what you would say to each of us personally and individually and what you would say to us as a church here in the centre of Manchester today. Help us to rightly understand your word and rightly see, Holy Spirit, how you would take your Spirit-inspired word and use it to transform our lives today. Amen. Uh, sorry, I didn't introduce myself. My name is Ralph. Uh, I'm one of the leaders here at City Church. And a special welcome to you if this is your first time with us. We're really delighted you're here. And um, had you been here just before Christmas, I shared with the church what my favorite Christmas film is. It's a wonderful life. I, I just love it. I love the film. The snow glistening in Bedford Falls, the, the kind of gooey look that Donna Reed has as she looks at Jimmy Stewart at the end. And, and you know, at the end, when they all gather around the Christmas tree, big smiles on their faces, and together they sing Old Lang Syne. It's a wonderful life. What is not to love about It's a Wonderful Life? What a fact that it's not a wonderful life, is it? It's not a wonderful life for the orphan in Gaza who watched as his mum and dad were blown to pieces and now has to live the rest of his life as an amputee. It's not for the pensioner who invested their life savings into what turned out to be a pyramid scheme and now has nothing to live on. It's not for the teenage girl who has spent the vast majority of her life as a prostitute on the streets of Kolkata. It is not for you a wonderful life as you grieve the loss of a loved one. 
as you send off yet another job application and you're just waiting for the inevitable rejection letter to come through the door. It's not a wonderful life for you as you continue to feel crippled by loneliness and depression. Jimmy Stewart might be able to say, it's a wonderful life, but all too often we don't feel like that, do we? You see, that is why this book that we've been studying for the past month, the book of Ecclesiastes, that's why this book is so fresh, so, so, so relevant, so, so timely for us. It faces life square in the face, and it asks the questions we desperately want to ask but feel like we can't get out of our mouths. You see, we live in a time of plenty. We, we have more in the 21st century than any generation has had before us. And yet we feel like we just need more and more and more. The human race, it is more developed. It has progressed more than at any point in human history. Yet the last century saw more people be murdered than any century before. 187 million people were killed by other people. We have entertainment at our fingertips on demand, yet we feel a sense of constant boredom and monotony. We have a better understanding of mental health than we've ever had. And yet self-harm and suicide rates continue to skyrocket. When you survey the world, it doesn't look like it's a wonderful life, does it? And Ecclesiastes, as a book, it confronts that head on. That is why it's so engaging. That is why it's so provocative. That is why it's so intriguing for us. But, but I want to say a few words about what sort of book Ecclesiastes is and about how we read it as a book. Now, if you're here regularly, you'll know that I don't normally do this. And I don't, certainly don't normally do it in the middle of a, a sermon series, but I think it's helpful to do this now, off the back of what we saw just two weeks ago when we were looking at Ecclesiastes chapters 5 and 6. You see, Ecclesiastes is not a book like Matthew's Gospel or Mark's Gospel, which are eyewitness accounts. It's a book that falls into the genre of literature that is known as wisdom literature. There are actually three books of wisdom literature in the Bible. There's the book of Proverbs the book of Ecclesiastes, and the book of Job. And there are lots of examples of wisdom literature from outside the Scriptures, just like there's lots of examples of eyewitness accounts from outside the Scriptures. But the thing that all, all wisdom literature has in common is that they have a shared vocabulary, using the same words, especially the word wisdom, again and again and again. They're also all very practical, looking at what is practically good for men and women living in the world. And thirdly, all wisdom literature is experiential. It's all observations about what the writer sees in the world around them. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes, it has to be read with that in mind. You see, every word that is written here 
is the inspired word of God. That means that every word that is written here carries the full authority of God, and it is all absolutely true in what it affirms to be true. That is the doctrine of inerrancy. This is without an error in everything it affirms to be true. We, we believe that. But we need to recognize that this is a particular form of literature. It, it is practical, it is experiential, it is observational, which means that we have to be really careful to rightly determine what it is affirming to be true. Because not everything that we find in the Bible is true. Does that shock you? Has it made you a little bit nervous? Remember, I've just said we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. But let me give you a straightforward example. Okay, this, this one's straightforward. I think we'll all agree on this. Uh, just look up Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. I think it'll come up on the screen behind me as well, but look it up just so you can see the surrounding context. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. Jesus heals a man who's been possessed by a demon. Now, now the people around, they're, they're really excited about this. This is amazing. What's happening? What's happening? Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the son of David? And the Pharisees reply... It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Is that true? It's in the Bible. Was Jesus really working by the power of Satan? Oh, I think we can all agree, can't we, that, that that is not true, even though it's what the Pharisees are saying in the Bible. We know that's not true because we know in the Bible, in the New Testament, the Pharisees, they're, they're the baddies. What they say is almost always wrong. So it's uncontroversial to say that that is not true. Let's take another example. This time it's much closer to the book of Ecclesiastes. Have you ever read the book of Job? The book of Job is a long, long book. And, and the whole book is on one single topic. It's on the topic of suffering. And it opens with a description of how Job suffered in the most horrific way imaginable. His, his children, they're all wiped out in a single disaster. All of his property is stolen. And then he is afflicted by horrendous diseases that leave him in constant pain and irritation. And then what follows is 33 long chapters of speeches from Job's friends who've come to comfort Job and then his responses to those speeches. Now, you read those speeches. The first time I read those speeches, I went through them and I, I thought, actually, you know, these seem quite sensible. These friends of Job, they sound like they might have it right. They're very sound, very holy people. But then we get to the end of the book of Job... And you read this. This is God speaking to one of Job's friends named Eliphaz. I think we've got it up on the screen. Job 42, verse 7. God says, I am angry with you, Eliphaz, and your two friends, because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So in the book of Job, we have 33 chapters of untrue things being said about God. 
Because Job's friends have come along and they've tried to squeeze God into their narrow categories of cause and effect, of of sin and retribution. And the book of Job is wisdom literature. So we need to be very careful about how we read wisdom literature to work out what what is God saying... And what is the foil? What is the the worldly wisdom that God confounds? Does that make sense? And if we are careful, if we read it rightly, what we will find is that this is incredibly insightful for us today. Matt gave the first talk in the series, and he pointed out that the book of Ecclesiastes, it contains the teaching of the the author who is called the preacher, Kohelet. The name in Greek is Ecclesiastes, the the leader of the assembly. That's where the book gets its name from. It's it's the name of the preacher, Ecclesiastes. And the preacher in Ecclesiastes, he is describing, remember that the wisdom literature is experiential. He is describing what he observes in life. For for the preacher, when he looks out, he sees life, the whole of life, he sees it, and he uses his Hebrew word to describe it, hevel, meaningless. Life, he says, is a vapor. You you hold it in your hands, it's like holding a cloud, and in an instant, it's gone. That's life, as he observes it. You see, this is a book that is written by a cynic. That's why you find it so intriguing. The preacher, he's not naive. He's not kind of pie in the sky when you die. No, he he is raw. He he is earthy. He is real in what he observes and what he says. But, But he comes at this cynicism from a particular perspective. In fact... What happens in chapter 7 is he moves from from teachings into Proverbs. And as he moves, he he adopts a new perspective. And the perspective is marked by this description of life as being under the sun. That's how he puts it. That, That phrase, under the sun, it appears no less than nine times in the two and a half chapters we're looking at today. You see... The preacher, he is taking the guise of a secular cynic. He's not pretending to be an atheist. He actually mentions God 13 times in these chapters. But God, for the preacher, as he's put on his secular cynic guise, God in that mindset is impersonal, remote, and unpredictable. You see, the preacher here, he's not just being cynical about life. He's being cynical about belief. What's more, he's being cynical about unbelief. You see, the the preacher here in these chapters, he's very fair and even-handed. So maybe you're here this afternoon, and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. In fact, you'd say you're an agnostic. You're you're just here to find out. You're you're open-minded. You're sitting on the fence. You you suspect that there's probably an ultimate being out there, but you don't think anyone can really find it, and you think Christians are probably a little bit silly to think they have. Well, the preacher here, 
he is cynical about your unbelief. So listen up. Every one of you here today, whether you're an atheist, an agnostic, or a Christian, the preacher is cynical about your worldview. He's got you in his crosshairs. Three points today. Three, three points from the preacher's musings on life. First up, life doesn't make sense. These chapters are really depressing, aren't they? And you did get that as they were read. If we didn't read it all, you'd have been even more depressed. It starts okay. So look at chapter 7, verse 1. A good name is better than fine perfume. Yeah, I get that, okay? Having a good reputation in the community, being upright, it is better than smelling of Dior Sauvage. I, I get that. I believe it. But nothing prepares you for the next line. The day of death is better than the day of birth. What on earth is the preacher saying here? Well, I think it's explained in the verses that follow. You see, at the day of birth, there's, there's laughter, there's joy, there's expectation, there's, there's this, this thinking, what could be? Let's dream about this child's future. But at the day of death, there is just sober reflection on the reality of life. You, you're no longer giddy with excitement about what could be. You no longer have the laughter of fools, verse 6. You realize at the point of death that life is pebble, meaningless, a vapor. That's why verse 8, the end of the matter is better than its beginning. At the beginning, you're, you're naive, you're, you're hopeful, you're, you're expectant. But by the end, you embrace reality. You realize that life is meaningless, pebble. In chapter 8, the preacher, just flick over to chapter 8 with me, the preacher moves to the sphere of civic, civic life, in government, state. And he says, that's, that's meaningless too. It doesn't make any sense. So the king and the government and, and all the authorities, they've been given to, to do good for the citizens, to, to protect the citizens, to do what is just. But the problem is that the king carries absolute power. His word, verse 4 of chapter 8, is supreme, so you better keep your head down and just go along with whatever he says. That's why the guilty go unpunished. That's why sentences are not carried out, verse 11. Life makes no sense. There's injustice in the civil courts, but the preacher wants us to see that there is injustice in the ultimate court of nature too. So look at verse 14 of chapter 8. There is something else that is meaningless on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. You see, innocent people on a daily basis, they get mowed down in a hail of bullets while the most wicked and evil people go on living a long life in comfort and luxury and end up dying peacefully in their sleep. Life makes no sense. The preacher takes this still further in chapter 9. He says, verse 2, everyone shares a common destiny. 
As it is with the good, verse two, so with the sinful. See, it doesn't matter whether you're good or evil. Same outcome. In fact, life is just a game of blind chance, the preacher says. Look at verse 11. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or favor or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. You see, he looks at the world and he says, well, well the fastest, they, they never win the race. The strongest, they never win the battle. The, the smartest and the most brilliant, they are never the most wealthy. I mean, that's what we see, isn't it? Life is blind chance, the preacher says. So what you need to do is you need to pull up your seat to the roulette wheel of life and have a spin. Maybe you'll get lucky, but maybe you won't. Life makes no sense. We can relate to that, can't we? to the preacher's cynicism at life as he observed it. On the 15th of February, 1947, an Avianca airline DC-4 plane hit El Tabalazzo Mountain in Ecuador. It exploded immediately on impact and then tumbled down this 14,000-foot peak in Ecuador. Before leaving the airport that day, a young New Yorker named Glenn Chambers, he'd hurriedly scribbled a note on a piece of paper that he'd found on the floor of the airport terminal. The scrap of paper was part of a printed advertisement with a single word sprawled across the centre of it. That word was the word, why? Needing stationery in a hurry, he, Chambers picked up this, this sheet of paper, he scribbled a note to his mother, he quickly folded it, and, and last minute before he boarded the plane, put it in an envelope and stuck it in a mailbox. It was just short. He knew that there would be more mail to come, that as soon as he got to Ecuador, he'd write something more and send it back to his mother. More about how he was fulfilling his lifelong dream to start a new Christian ministry called the Voice of the Andes in Ecuador. But there was no more notes to come. Between the mailing and the delivery of Chambers' note, El Tabalazzo snagged both that airplane and Chambers' dreams. The envelope ended up arriving after news of the crash reached Chambers' mother. And when she received it, that question in the middle burned on her mind. Why? Why him? Why me? Why this? Why now? And isn't that what we feel? Life makes no sense. But that's what the cynic, that's what our preacher wants us to see. But he wants us to see a second thing too. He wants us to see that secularism doesn't help. Remember, the preacher, he's taking on the mantle, he's taking on the guise of being a secular cynic. 
We've already seen him in chapter two. We had John Causey here, and he showed us how, how the preacher, he, he test drives, he test runs different approaches to life. And he's doing exactly that here in chapters seven to nine. It's not that the preacher is, is acting as if he's an atheist. Like, like we've seen, he mentions God repeatedly. But he is acting as a secularist. You see, secularism, it can accept the existence of God, but it pushes God to the very periphery of life. It makes God a purely private matter. To use, to use the terminology of the philosopher Max Weber, secularism adopts a disenchanted view of the world. So, so there may be a God... But if there is a God, he is very aloof, he is very distant, he doesn't doesn't get involved, and he doesn't want to have a personal relationship with us. That's secularism. And the the preacher, what he does is he test drives this worldview in three ways in these chapters. Firstly, by being a pragmatist. Take a look back at chapter 7, verse 11. Here he starts to discuss wisdom, and and at first it looks promising, doesn't it? Wisdom is a good thing. Wisdom comes from God. But look at what he says next. The value of the wisdom is not that it leads us to God. No, its value is that it works. You see, the preacher, he's being a pragmatist. This is wisdom from below. You know, Jeremy Bentham was not the founder of, of utilitarianism. Coalette was. For him, verse 12, wisdom is just like money. Wisdom gets you what you want, just like money gets you what you want. It maximizes your pleasure. If you have it, it will minimize your pain. Look at verse 19 of chapter 7. Wisdom makes one wise person more powerful than ten rulers in a city. It's pragmatic. Chapter 8, verse 1, a wise person's wisdom brightens their face and changes its hard appearance. Wisdom works, the preacher says. So get it. You know, this pragmatism, it leads to ludicrous places. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 of chapter 7. The preacher observed that righteous people perish while wicked people live long and happy lives. And so, advice, verse 16, do not be over-righteous, but verse 17, do not be over-wicked. Hedge your bets. Wickedness, it might find you out eventually, so, so be careful, don't be too wicked. But you know, bad things happen to really, really righteous, good people, so make sure you're not too righteous either. Just steer a middle course. The Bible commentator, Don Carson, he calls this verse cowardice, tarted up in stoicism. That's right. The second way that the preacher test drives secularism is by being a hedonist. Now, now the New Testament is absolutely clear that asceticism, Denying yourself sensual pleasures, just being miserable, that has no place in the Christian life. It's not more godly, it's not more holy than enjoying the good things that God has given. 
Far from it. The Apostle Paul actually tells the church in Ephesus in 1 Timothy chapter 4 that food and drink and sex, they are all good things that God has given in creation to be received with thanksgiving and prayer. Those things, they they are tastes of heaven, of the new creation. But that is not what the preacher is saying here. Yes, in, in verse 15 of chapter 8, he does say, go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. He does say, enjoy life with your wife, verse 9. But this isn't 1 Timothy chapter 4. This isn't enjoying God's good gifts. No, he's encouraging people to distract themselves to death. You see, life under the sun, did you notice how many times it comes up here? Life under the sun, it doesn't make sense, he says. If if you think about it too much, it will mess up your head. So go out, get drunk, party like crazy, have sex as much as you can, distract yourself from the meaninglessness of life. But verse 10 of chapter 9, you'll end up in the same place, the realm of the dead, where your sensual desires will be no more. Friends, hedonism doesn't work because it dehumanizes us. What do I mean? Well, Jesus tells us that our desires, our physical desires are are real. Our desire for food, our desire for drink, our desire for friendship, for intimacy, for marriage, those are real desires. They're part of what it means to be human. The Apostle Paul tells us that they are a good gift. They're a taster of the new creation. Marriage itself is a taster of the new creation where where Jesus Christ himself is the bridegroom. Those desires, they are good. But secularism dismisses them. It says that they're simply a distraction to help you keep going throughout life, to stop you from taking things seriously. They're a plaything. Just another part of this meaningless life. Which leads into the third way that the preacher test drives secularism. And that's by being a moral relativist. Look at verse 4 of chapter 9 with me. The preacher has just said that it doesn't matter whether you're good and sinful, it doesn't matter whether you're honest or dishonest, we all end up in the same place. Verse 3. And then, verse 4, he says, Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. Now, to understand the force of this statement in verse 4, we need to understand what people in the preacher's day thought of those animals. You see, today... Today we think dogs are lovely, don't we? 
Everyone seems to love my dog, Maisie. No one knows quite how terrible she is. People love her. She's very sweet and cuddly. They all think she's a wonderful dog. And we think of lions, and we think they're scary things in the zoo. We're going to keep the door locked on the safari in case they come and get us. But that is not the way that the preacher's first hearers would have understood those animals. You see, they view dogs as being unclean, dirty, vile, untrustworthy animals, while lions, well, they were noble, honorable. So what the preacher is saying here in chapter 9, verse 4, is that you are better off being a, a liar, a crook, and a thief who's a lie than be a person of impeccable integrity who's dead. Why? Well, look again, look at the passage. And notice the four at the beginning of verse five. This means in what follows, he's giving the reason why it's better to be a a live dog than a dead lion. For verse six, their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. He's saying nothing ultimately matters. Good deeds end up in the grave just as much as evil deeds do. So neither really matter. In fact, there's no such thing as good and evil. There just is. And you see... That is why secularism so so monumentally fails us. It says that life doesn't make sense. But you can't really say that. What do I mean? Well, I think no one has really put this better than C.S. Lewis put it more than 50 years ago now. In his book, uh, Mere Christianity, Lewis explains how in his early years, when he looked at the suffering in the world around him, that caused him to reject the existence of a God. He saw that life makes no sense, and so he dismissed the possibility of a creator who'd ordered everything. But in his 30s, Lewis discovered that the evil he thought was an objection to God was an even greater objection to his unbelief. Listen to how he explains it. He said, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up the idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my fancies. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. Do you see his point? Life doesn't make sense. That's common ground. It feels wrong as we look out. As we observe it from below, it all looks unjust. But if we take God out of the picture, as secularism does, then we're simply left with moral relativism. 
It is better to be a living despot and a genocidal maniac than be a dead hero. Because all of your deeds are meaningless, good or evil. Who cares if you get cancer? Who cares if you lose a limb? Who cares if you lose a child? Who cares if you're racked by depression and loneliness all your life? Those things, they just are. They're neither good nor bad. You better just get used to it. That's what secularism says. Life doesn't make sense. But secularism, it just makes things worse. So we need the gospel. Because the gospel changes absolutely everything. That's our third point. The preacher, he's test-driving secularism. It's how this genre of literature works, test-driving different worldviews. But even if he wasn't test-driving secularism, the preacher at this point in redemptive history, he didn't have all the information he needed to know how to make sense of the world. Yes, he understood lots of true things. He understood lots of essentials of the faith. Take a look back at chapter 7, verse 20 with me. This is an absolutely crucial statement, one which is picked up by, by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3. He says, remember, he said some, some strange things about it not mattering whether you're righteous or wicked, yet he still says this. There is no one on earth who is righteous. No one who does what is right and never sins. You see, he understands that all of us have rebelled against God. We are all sinners, guilty in the courts of God's justice. And the preacher realizes that it is that sin that has caused all the suffering and injustice and nonsense and craziness in the world around us. But he hasn't yet seen, he hasn't yet seen how God can put all of that right. You see, he is wrong. He's not wrong from what he's observed, but he's wrong because he cannot see the future because there is one on earth who was righteous. There was one who always did right and never sinned. You know, that, that one, that, that Jesus was a righteous person who... Verse 15 of chapter 7, perished in his righteousness. He laid down his life. He died the death of the unrighteous so that unrighteous people like you and like me might be made right. So that we who are by nature dogs might be made lions. So that we who are destined for death might receive life. In just a few moments, Shire is going to be getting baptized. He's doing that because he has put his faith in Jesus. He has turned to Jesus and received Jesus' righteousness. Could that be you today as well? Could this be the day when you see and you believe and you trust that in this world of craziness, God himself has come in as the righteous one to make it all right, to make sense, to be just, 
at the same time as receiving us who do injustice. But you know, it's not just that Jesus made sense of life in an unjust world. He's also shown us how to travel through this world as well. You see, he has shown us that the pathway to feasting is through hunger. The route to joy is through sorrow. Certainty can only come after confusion. And victory, ultimate victory, only comes through seeming defeat. The, the preacher of Ecclesiastes, he, he's very self-aware. He says, all I'm doing is looking at life under the sun. This is wisdom from below. But the true preacher, the, the true Ecclesiastes, Jesus, didn't just look at what he could observe, but pointed to what is to come. His, his wisdom wasn't the self-centered cynicism of Coelet. His wisdom was the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Life makes no sense if death is all that there is. Verse 10 of chapter 9. But Jesus has shown the pathway to life. The pathway to meaning in this meaningless world. There's an ancient cathedral and at its front, it has three doorways. And over each doorway is an inscription. Over the right-hand door, there's the motto, all that pleases is but for a moment. Hevel. Over the left-hand door, the words are, all that troubles is but for a moment. Hevel. But over the central door is the simple sentence, nothing is important save that which is eternal. The gospel changes everything. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are wisdom, wisdom from God for us, wisdom personified, wisdom that turns the world's wisdom upside down, inside out. Oh Lord, we look on the world and it makes us want to cry as we see how little sense it makes, as we see the cruelty, as we see the injustice. It makes us cry out, come Lord Jesus, put it right. Thank you that you have done that. Thank you that you've come into our world as the righteous one. You became sin for us so that in you we might become the righteousness of God. Lord Jesus, you have shown us the path through this sinful, broken, hurting world. You've shown us the way to make it through. Thank you for your mercy. Would we by faith throw ourselves into your loving arms? Would we trust that you have done it all? The price is paid, the shackles of sin have been broken, and the doorway to eternity has been opened forever.